welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Mark Lasota. He is currently a clinical assistant professor in sports management at Texas A&M University and is also a former college football player and sports security guard. Um, Doctor, we appreciate the time this evening. Thanks for having me, Stephen and Sam. It's my pleasure. Yeah, of course. So as I mentioned in the intro, you are currently a professor in sports management at Texas A&M University and College Station. Talk to us about you know how long you've had that title and when did you um, like what was the process of, of getting to College Station? Yeah, so um, originally, you know, before my last stop before I got here was in Peoria State um, University. I was the director of sport leadership and recreation there. Um, and it was a good experience. I enjoyed it. I met Sam there. Uh, and, you know, I just put my name in the hat for some positions that I would consider advanced in the sense that they would give me some additional resources and leverage to, you know, pursue some of my goals um, in academia. And uh, Texas A&M, you know, is a college that really is sport heavy, right? So the sport culture is great and they pump a lot of resources into sports as well as um, different types of academic programs. And so that was um, really intriguing to me. And, and so um, I connected, you know, a lot of times um, you connect with professionals at these conferences, right? And so I presented research at the Sport and Recreation Law Conference last year. Um, I connected with a couple of AM people from there. You know, when I was interviewing, I've had, I had several interviews for different positions, you know, at different schools. And I had some choice, you know, uh, where to go. Uh, but uh, A&M just had all the opportunity that I was looking for, you know, just, just a great environment for sports. The faculty, which I have the opportunity to work with, you know, I'm able to work collaboratively on research, whereas at Emporia State, even though I really enjoyed working there, I, I enjoyed the chair of the department, Paul Lubers, a great guy, and I enjoyed my experience there, but I was the only, you know, sport management um, researcher, and so even though the other faculty members, you know, we had good relationships, a lot of us, but now I'm able to work on a lot of um, different projects with a variety of people. And so uh, it's very interdisciplinary as well as um, everyone kind of has their um, niche within sport management. So it's, just, I think it's the one uh, bucket list item when it came to um, being a part of a university, because I've worked 15 years in university education. I taught um, at a number of schools, but I never um, taught in a 70,000 student uh, school um, that was in the SEC conference and, and that level of competition. So all those factors sort of intrigued me. It's been a great first semester. I just started uh, in the fall and 
it, it's been busy, but it's been exciting. And I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Now, for those who are not accustomed to the subject of sports management, what do you teach your students that are taking your classes? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, sport management's a very broad discipline that has a number of sub-disciplines. You know, if you look at sport finance, sport law, sport leadership, ethics, marketing, you know, so a variety of, of areas. I've taught pretty much every class you could think of in sport management over the years. Uh, I specialize in sport leadership and organizational culture. Those are my two areas. And under that umbrella, mentoring and emotional intelligence are, are areas of leadership. My personal philosophy in the classroom is I like to use the subject that I'm teaching um, as a vehicle to teach students about life, you know, and teach students how to develop um, both personally and professionally, even though it's important to know the theoretical elements of, you know, the particular topic we're discussing. Um, I'm a pragmatic or practical type teacher. I think more in a professional development lens and because I feel like it's my duty and my job to help prepare my students for that next level, to be a successful professional in the field and to, to be a good person and also to understand the importance of effective communication skills and leadership skills, you know, as they go on and progress. And um, so I'm proud of Sam, I can tell you that. He's got really good communication skills and he's a testament to, you know, a student who worked really hard and continues to um, persevere and try to find, you know, different opportunities and connections. And I, I really applaud him for that. And those are the types of concepts that I like teaching is share my personal and professional experiences with students, have good discussions, um, and of course, teach them about a, a particular framework or, you know, different um, academic concept. But I always think in teaching, if a teacher can take a complex concept and simplify it so others can understand it, to me, that's good teaching. You know, it's, uh, it's particularly with undergrad students who may not have all the research experience yet, you know, and some of those research articles can be very rigorous and uh, word heavy, you know, very articulate type um, where I have, I find myself Googling words you know, sometimes. And so I try to take really the classroom and use it in a way to uh, develop that person. You know, that's my philosophy. When you were at Emporia State and you were there for about two and a half years <clears throat> um, with sport leadership and recreation, go through a little bit of the process of like, what were some of these main, you know, projects that you had students work on, the relationships that you continue to build when you were at ESU? Yes. Um, you know, Emporia was the smallest town that I had ever lived in. You know, uh, my wife now, she grew up in central Mexico, Guanajuato, Mexico, and she grew up in a very small community in the mountains. I grew up in Chicago, you know, and I've, I've lived in a number of bigger cities. Uh, and so it was, it was a small town. 
Um, but I can tell you that I really have an appreciation for Emporia. You know, I, I feel like the, the chair that I worked with, Paul Lubers, he gave me the autonomy to try different things as a leader. Uh, I had uh, started a, a student association there when I was in that sport leadership director role. I also um, had students, you know, working on um, their presentation skills, uh, a lot of class discussions on a number of topics. I had a, a conference that I had students participate in, uh, but, you know, it's a smaller program. And so you didn't always have the participation you wanted, although, there were, you know, there were some students who really soaked it up, tried to uh, squeeze everything out of the opportunity and make the most out of it. You also had some some apathy to, you know, uh, which I understand because it's, I was an undergrad, you know, one time, and, and I know that it's not always easy to get engaged in extracurricular projects, but, but with the program, I mean, I was responsible for teaching a 4-4 load. So I would teach four courses per semester. I'd run the internships, um, the practicums. I also marketed the program. I also made changes to the curriculum. I was sort of the one-man gang. Then. I think one nice transition transitional element here in, in a college station is that now I have the opportunity to focus more on projects that I'm interested in, you know, whereas there I, it was very, um, I also had research obligations. I also advised 40 to 50 students. So there's a lot going on. And I think being a part of AM, there's so many pieces to the puzzle that you have that freedom to sort of focus on the things you you do best and the things you like to do most. Um, but with that said, I, Emporia State really helped me develop in different ways. You know, I, I think as um, I had been in leadership roles before, but it gave me an opportunity to sort of become even more well-rounded and um, learn the ins and outs. Um, I mean, I served on the faculty senate. Um, I sort of learned fiscally where the university was at. And I know that there's, you know, there's been a lot that has happened. So I, I feel like it's, it was a valuable part of my journey. However, I think we all should follow our dreams and, and continue to try to, you know, strive for excellence in everything we do and try to find that best opportunity for our, our families. One good positive element of being here is that my wife's parents are in central Mexico and we just drive down to Houston, hour, 20 minutes, jump on a flight. It's like hour and a half there. And that, you know, it's a short and very easy process. And that was important to me, too, because family is important to me. Where were these programs at from a student body and funding perspective? Just how, how big were they? How popular were these uh, classes? before you you took over at these schools? Well, you know, at, at Emporia State, we built the uh, student uh, enrollment, the number of students in the program. So when I was there, there was around in the 30s um, students. And then when I left, we, we built that up to between somewhere around 45 or 50 students. So you know, in the two years I was there, we, we did have some 
um, some more join. We, we put some money into marketing the program as well. Uh, and we, what we had was when I first got there, they, the idea was there was an online and an on-site, you know, diff, two programs in, in one in a sense. And it was a little bit, a little bit confusing at first, but, but we made it, we made it work. We, we built the online one a little bit, but ultimately I think one thing that COVID taught us was that students were ready to kind of get in the classroom. You know, we're seeing that more and more. I mean, some people prefer online, like if they're adult learners or they're working a nine to five job or maybe for convenience purposes, but socializing wise, I think students miss that. And so um, the level of support at Emporia State compared to um, Texas A&M is, is, is apples and oranges. Again, Paul Lubers, the, the chair, he did everything he could to put me in a position to be successful. He supported my endeavors. Like we had one project where we took, and Sam was a part of this. We took the, had a, a bus and we took the students up to KC. They got tours of Arrowhead and Kauffman Stadium. We had a Q&A session with um, some executives with the Royals. And so that was something I'm proud of that we we're able to put that together. And I had full support, you know, from the kinesiology program or the hyper program. And so I really don't have any complaints with Emporia because you don't always get somebody in a leadership role who's supportive. Sometimes you get a micromanager mm-hmm. and, you know, Paul Lubers, he respected my background. He, he, let me do my job and ultimately um you know he he delegated wherever people's strengths are he allowed them to do that so i think the the hyper department's in good hands under his leadership but i think the greater university has a lot of problems that, mm-hmm. as we've seen you know even in the press with regard to managing resources and they've dropped um, tenure or not, not drop tenure, but they're starting to let go of tenure track for tenure faculty, which is a total deviation from the norm in, in academics. So I know they have some, some issues, and I actually feel for a lot of the faculty there. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think we all have to pursue the opportunity that's best for us and our families. And people that truly care about us and respect us, um, understand that, you know? And so I had to make that decision, but looking back, uh, I'm glad that I was part of Emporia State. And my wife, you know, taught online there as well as for the counseling education department, as well as um, she was an academic advisor for graduate Mm -hmm. students, um, which now she's a program director at Texas A&M for a, a program it's a certificate program for students with disabilities called PATHS. And so she's uh, doing well. And it was just a good family opportunity here in College Station. Now, moving to um, a different uh, time in your life, uh, you played college football at Ball State University. What position did you play and how, how was that experience? That those are great memories. 
I was at Ball State from, I was a freshman in 1997 um, at Ball State, and um, I was a walk-on. I tried out for the team, and I was one of three people that they brought back out of, I think the people that tried out were somewhere in the 40s, and so I was very proud of that. Mm -hmm. I played inside linebacker. You know, I played a season. I played in the, the red-white spring scrimmage game in 2000. Um, so I was a part of that. And, you know, I had some difficult choices at that time as well, because my grandmother um, who raised me, she was an immigrant from Slovakia and my grandparents raised me. And so she got really sick. You know, I made a decision um, to help, you know, drive home on some weekends while I was in college, you know, to help her I cherish my time at Ball State. In fact, some of the other linebackers uh, nicknamed me Top Speed because mm -hmm. I would always go full speed in practice and everything. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I was one of those guys who worked really hard. I had soft hands and I hit hard, you know, linebacker and a very physical player. But I wasn't fast enough uh, to play secondary uh, college. But in high school, I played, you know, more safety and um, I did a few different things. But, you know, at that level, um, everybody's really fast. And so um, I was a heady player, uh, a guy who liked to hustle, worked hard. And, you know, I, I always look back at those, those years as great years. And um, Ball State, that would have been my third year of school there. You know, the first game of the year, I remember they played at Florida and Steve Spurrier was there and Rex Grossman was a quarterback, but we lost 40 to 19. I remember that was an opening uh, day game. And actually in the third quarter, I think it was 26, 19. So we we're competitive. And then Spurrier sort of tacked down a few points. Um, but um, that's, that's one thought I didn't play in the game, but you know, that was um, one memory. And, you know, just looking back as a walk-on, you're not given anything. You, you have to fight, scrape, and scratch for everything. And so just balancing responsibilities in the classroom, um, which later on in life, I became more of a focused student. Um, back then, I was learning the ropes. I was a first-generation college student who grew up, you know, in a um, very humble community in, in South Chicago. You know, I didn't really have exposure to college. And so just trying to um, balance things was, was tough. But, um, but the, the memories and the way things were back then, I mean, just the, the changes in, in the way the games played, the way the games um, refereed or controlled, you know, just totally different. I remember getting a uh, note card in the mail from the NCAA regarding the concussion um, class action lawsuit. If I would have been a part of it, maybe I would have gotten a dollar out of it. <laughs> I don't know, but um, just shows you back then, you know, when I played, you know, I had a couple of concussions that I know of from either college or high school, but I just didn't say anything, um, mainly because, uh, you know, I was pretty masculine guy. I, I didn't want to show weakness. You know, that was the mindset back then. Your ears ringing or something's happening, just don't sell it. Don't show it to anyone. 
Whereas now we know very much more diligent on keeping players healthy long-term, particularly CTE, you know, fighting CTE and so forth. So, but I don't regret playing football. I, I loved it. Even, even with the physical, I have physical, I power lifted too. And I have a lot of physical injuries and I'm beat up from my days of heavy lifting and, and playing sports, but no regrets, you know, help make me the man I am too. You know, I think sports build character. Right. Now you um, worked security and other events such as the 2003 Super Bowl and various bowl games. How did those opportunities come about and what was it like um, in those environments? Yes, that's that's going back. So looking back at, let's see, 2003 Super Bowl. Yeah, Tampa versus the Raiders. You know, I had a connection from Ball State, a good friend of mine, who initially connected me with a group of people in um, San Diego, minimum wage. Um, I, I had just moved to San Diego. And believe it or not, uh, for two weeks when I got there, I, I lived out of my car. I have a pretty, pretty humble journey and story. It was a struggle at first, but fortunately, I was able to, to get that opportunity, which was minimum wage, but still, you know, to be part of the Super Bowl uh, and to get paid for working the Super Bowl. Now, in those days, though, that was fresh off of September 11th. You know, that had happened, you know, just what, about a, two years before that or a year and a half before that. So there was a lot of apprehension and people were very vigilant, you know, as to some of the security risks. In fact, the day of the game, um, and I worked the whole month of the game. So I worked NFL experience. I worked at the press conferences at the convention center. And then the day of the game, uh, the Secret Service actually trained us a little bit. I mean, it sounds like heroic, right? But, mm -hmm. but, it's, um, but it just shows you the magnitude of some of the concerns of, you know, possible terrorist threats and so forth at that time. Um, and so that was interesting. And I, I had, you know, done a patting down of people and I'd have certain checkpoints. Um, but ultimately, you know, just getting in the stadium, Qualcomm Stadium and experiencing the Super Bowl, because I could never afford to go to the mm -hmm. Super Bowl growing up. So being able to work it, get paid time and a half and, um, you know, have that experience. And of course, uh, that was the, the John Gruden game. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, when he <clears throat> was. Uh, traded from the Raiders to Tampa, and then that next season led them to the Super Bowl. But yeah, it was a route. It was, I think, 48 to 21, um, you know, massacre. Um, Tampa's defense, that was one of the best defenses in NFL history. I'm biased, so I say the 85 Bears are the best Bears fan. But mm -hmm. uh, certainly uh, that was interesting. Sh Shania Twain, Bon Jovi, some mm -hmm. of the performers. And I got a chance to meet so many people, you know, I remember having a conversation with the great Don Shula. You know, I was just discussing football with him out in the hall and he had said, Oh, cool. You're from ball state. You know, I told him I played there and 
he had mentioned an old player from Ball State, Bernie Parmalee, it's a running back back in the day who he coached in Miami. And uh, he seemed like such a gracious, good guy. I remember that experience. And, you know, I, I uh, the Super Bowl press conferences, I worked those where you had Coach Callahan and then Coach Cruden was up there. So I had to sort of check their credentials and they were coming in. I do remember having a conversation with Tom Brady. He won't remember it, probably, mm-hmm. but I escorted Tom Brady to his car, I believe, and we were just chatting, but he was not Tom Brady yet. He had won one Super Bowl, um, but he was not, which I feel probably the greatest quarterback of all time. But certainly there's a great, great argument for it. You could say Joe Montana, Roger Stalvac. There were some great ones, but um, he seemed like such a chill, cool as a cat, real guy, actually. And so those were those were some highlights. You know, Emmett Smith was there's one thing with Super Bowl week, and I was telling my students this, this is so important. If you want to work in, say you want to work in college basketball, or if you want to work in the NBA, or you know, want to be part of the NFL, go to those events, you know, carpool, go in there with some buddies, go to the Super Bowl, experience the week in that city, because there's a great, greater odds or greatest odds would be you'll meet somebody from the NFL there, maybe on the streets or by a restaurant. I mean, I remember walking by a restaurant in the gas lamp district in San Diego, you know, Dan Marino's eating some Italian food in there or something, you know, and you just see people and they're out. Same thing with, I I told you this, Sam, you know, going to summer league when you're in class, I think I mentioned this, but, you know, going to summer league, if you want to work for the NBA, what a great area in Las Vegas to meet people in a relaxed environment mm-hmm. where you could connect, you know, same thing with NCAA tournament. So I feel grateful. I had that experience, you know, so much of the sport management world has to do with connections and, and networking, but I can tell you that any connections I've made over the years, I've done it from scratch. I never had parents there who were in positions to, to help me. You know, everything I did was just go out and make it happen, communicate, connect with people, nothing to lose. The worst they could say to you is no, and that's okay. You got to handle rejection. You got to have tough skin in the industry. You can't fear failure. You have to go out and ask, you you know, there's nothing wrong with asking. And so that was, um, that, that would be, I guess, my advice to sport management students is have confidence in yourself you are where you come from have that courage to go out and and meet people because really celebrities though they are more financially stable than us but also at the same time they are no better than us you you can't think that way Mm -hmm. Uh, you have to have the mindset i think okay i met tom brady tom brady's a nice guy i'm honored to meet him he's also honored to meet mark lasota you have to have that thought process because uh, we all have value in different ways. But I think that the, unfortunately, sometimes the society puts more credence to somebody who is wealthy or, or um, accomplished at, to that degree, you know, to where they're winning championships or something. But you can learn from, from everybody and you have to respect everybody. 
you had the chance to interview nine basketball Hall of Famers. Who were those Hall of Famers and what takeaways did you have? Yeah, for my dissertation, it was a dream study that I wanted to conduct. Uh, that was the topic. And I wanted to learn about the mentoring experiences of Hall of Fame players, mainly because young people look up to, like we're talking about fame, you know, whether it's wrong or right, but young people look up to accomplished individuals and, and sports icons and heroes. And so one motivation for me was to provide a study for young people to kind of learn from their mentoring experiences of these um, Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Famers. And the age range of the participants was between uh, 52 and 83. Um, and the study spanned really five decades of basketball. I mean, it was a rich study because you had the youngest participant, Gary Payton. They were all special in different ways, but me growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, one that I identified with. Um, and he was, he retired in 2007. And then um, Wayne Embry, who was the first African-American general manager in North American sport history. Uh, he was the oldest participant at 82 years old. And so those were um, two great interviews. Um, I also interviewed Artis Gilmore. Um, he was, uh, you know, a legend. They're all legends. Um, he was a very tall gentleman, you know, seven foot two uh, center. He played in the ABA. Um, as well as the NBA. Also, Rick Barry, you know, was another participant in the study. I'm thinking back, uh, Dino Raja um, gave a nice international perspective to the study. Um, you know, he played for Croatia and he had gone through um, some very difficult times, you know, from the transition to the NBA, but he was a very tough-minded, um, hardworking individual, had great values consummate gentleman, uh, Jamal Wilkes, Keith Wilkes, uh, you know, he played for John Wooden and he was uh, such a gracious, you know, great, great person. Um, and, you know, one, one interesting thing about all of these participants is they grew up very different. So there was a total of, you know, I believe six African-American participants, five or six and then we had, you know, a couple of Caucasian Americans and one international, but they all had different stories. You know, they all had different struggles, too, you know, in terms of uh, getting to the point that they were at. But some of the main takeaways of the study were that mentoring was so much more prevalent, but more informal mentoring, not necessarily formal mentoring programs like we have today, uh, but, you know, meeting someone from the church or meeting a teacher. The, the father figure was very much more a part of a lot of the participants' lives, and they had expressed that. And um, actually, thinking back, peer mentoring was a, was a big thing, right? So getting into the MBA and learning the ropes from somebody who had already been there. Um, one thing that stood out with Gary Payton, for example, is Nate McMillan was a mentor of his who played the same position. Um, and so they, you know, drafted Gary Payton as a number two overall pick, but yet Nate McMillan didn't, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if he felt threatened 
but he didn't show it. He, he was gracious enough to mentor Gary, even though he knew that that might make him go to the bench, right? Because a lot is invested in number two pick. But the fact that a lot of players back then seemed to dedicate more time, you know, in, in terms of helping. Like, for example, can you see Nick Saban today sitting down doing math homework with, you know, a young athlete? Whereas back then, I mean, even Wayne Embry expressed, you know, era Parsegian or some of the people that he knew or he considered mentors, you know, helped him and they were in prominent positions, but they, they gave the time to do that. I think times have changed a lot. A couple more participants that I could think of, Charlie Scott, he was a great interview and he grew up very similar as me in the sense that he didn't have parents, you know, the, the parent situation was unstable and he was a very well-spoken a man who, you know, works for everything. And I thought that was, that was really awesome as well. Um, Spencer Haywood, another great legend who was, you know, went through a major uh, Supreme Court case that changed for agency, enabled a lot of the NBA players today to make the money they have. When he took a stand um, being an Olympian, 19 year old athlete. So uh, just some some great, incredible uh, people um, that I interviewed. They were gentlemen. They gave me their time. And uh, it was a great experience. Now, Loyola Marymount basketball um, back in the 90s had a big man named Hank Gathers. Hank collapsed during a game in a West Coast Conference tournament. He eventually he passed was, away. Uh, um, from an irregular heartbeat. You conducted a case study on him. What did you find during this case study and what led you to uh, even conducting this? Well, I, you know, it was a, it was a class assignment in my PhD program and Hank gathers. Yes. He, he was, I think he led the nation in rebounding scoring maybe as well as part of that uh, great team with uh, Bo Kimball, and they they averaged. They were a high-scoring juggernaut. I thought his story was heartbreaking um, because he had such promise. Here's a young man, you know, who could have been a future leader. You know, a strong young man. You know, so so that was heartbreaking. Certainly, from an ethical standpoint, I wanted to learn a little more about you know what happened and um, what litigation occurred you know, from different ends. And then also that era of college basketball. And I know we're all biased, right? I mean, we, we say, oh, our time is the best. And generations before me will say their time was the best. Certain things were, were better when I grew up. No, I'm kidding. But certain <laughs> things were. But I also think there's, there's a lot to be learned today from younger generations too. It's, um, but I feel like the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s were just a great time for college basketball. You had some great rivalries. You had, you know, Larry Johnson versus Christian Leitner or Duke versus UNLV. Players stayed four years, you know, and so you could see those rivalries really develop during that time period. And so that was another element that I think intrigued me with, you know, I, I vividly remember him going down on the basketball court. 
seeing it on ESPN and in the, I think it was in the conference tournament mm -hmm. um, Loyola Marymount played in. And so really just learning from a, a sport law standpoint, you know, you have, people could sue for anything, right? First of all, and you had multiple cases where you had parents, you know, the family of Hank Gather suing, who were the parties affected, the doctor, the university. So that was really um, just learning the different people involved and what they were suing for. In the end, one of the things we have to, we have to learn from these situations where, where people have died on the field or the court is that um, when we see warning signs, you know, like with Hank Gathers, you know, he had warning signs and they, he ended up playing still after that. And so today I think we're much more cautious, but I don't know that we're cautious because humanity is so different or we think we care more. I think people are afraid to be sued. And that's sad to say, because uh, it should be about, we care about the person first, but like the NFL, um, I love NFL football, but certainly the NFL were concerned about being, you know, about lit litigation, you know, it, with that concussion lawsuit. You know, today, we, even hydration, we think of it different, right? And so I think one of the main takeaways is risk management. And a course that opened my eyes, taught by Dr. Todd Seidler um, in my PhD program, was a risk management course, you know, I had coached for, for several years and I hadn't even thought of some of those scenarios that I learned about in that risk management class. That class opened my eyes to, you know, the, the littlest intricate details that a sport leader must concern himself or herself with in terms of preventing um, injuries from occurring. Also, you know, assessing risks, you know, there's certain inherent risks that occur in sports. You could twist your ankle or sprain your ankle in a basketball game, but uh, there are avoidable risks that many people don't take the initiative to remedy or fix. And they're putting a person's health at risk. And they're also putting um, an institution at risk in terms of litigation and being sued. So these are things that sport leaders have to consider. And I think from that Hank gathers case, it was just more of learning about um, how can we as an athletic department, as a culture within an organization, really prioritize limiting risks and being able to not only fix risks once they occur, once a, something occurs, right, then we do something about it, but it's too late, but actually avoiding the risk in the first place anticipating foreseeable risks, we call it. Even though my college degrees are not necessarily in, you know, I have, I have four degrees. So, you know, my, my undergrad was in exercise science. One master's is in sports psychology. Another is an MBA in international business. And then my PhD is in uh, sport administration. I don't have a legal piece to it, but I think that was part of why I really uh, was intrigued about learning uh, about risk management and legal aspects of sport is that was a piece that maybe I was missing. So what did I do to try to get that piece? I 
have presented research seven years in a row at the Sport Recreation Law Association Conference. Um, and I've really taken interest in different cases uh, because I think as a sport leader, you can be a leader in different disciplines, right? So you could be a sport leader in law. You could be a sport leader in finance or marketing. And so even though my background's leadership, it's good to learn about different facets of leadership. So the long-winded answer, I know, but um, also um, to try to give you an idea of, of the method to my madness and how I think, you know, I try to always, if there's a weak area, I want to strengthen it. Yo, there are many events coming up in the world of sports. It'd be great to be in attendance for such. Where can we get tickets? SeatGeek. You see, SeatGeek is an app that can help you find the best seats with the best deals. SeatGeek shows you different tickets available with green being the best deals and red not being the hot deals. The best part is it shows you where you'll be sitting at the event. If you use the code SPORTSMECCA, you could get $20 off your first purchase. Get your seat at SeatGeek today. So, uh, Dr. Lasota, so um, one topic that's uh, been happening in uh, Kansas City is that the uh, Kansas City Royals announced the plan of a downtown ballpark. Um, a lot of people, a lot of mixed emotions in uh, Kansas City about it. I want to hear your input. Uh, what do you see as a uh, pros and cons to a uh, downtown ballpark? Yeah, very, very good, good question, Sam. I, if you look at the history of ballpark, so many of them started in downtown. Mm -hmm. Working class communities, actually, look back at the 1920s and 30s and 40s. A lot of the ballparks were built around the fan that um, was the working class fan, the factory worker, the steel mill worker. Tickets are out of reach for that family now. And, you know, a big reason is, like, these cities are so expensive to live in. The cost of living is so high. You know, when I used to teach at San Francisco State University, as a lecturer there for the kinesiology department, I believe I read in, in a study that 7% of the people that, can, that were working in San Francisco could afford to live there. And I use that as an example, you know, with, with KC. I know it's not the same cost of living situation as San Francisco, but a downtown ballpark poses a lot of concerns with regard to parking, with um, regard to accessibility. But at the same time, it does bring you close to that culture of the city. Kansas City really has a great culture. You know, just even if you go to the um, neighborhoods like 18th and Vine or, you know, just, just great, um, rich culture. So having a, a stadium there can be beneficial, maybe give an opportunity um, for, for fans to, to really um, sink their teeth into the team and, and engage um, in terms of um, avid fans. San Francisco learned with Levi's Stadium, even though it's great, you know, great facility, but so many people missed the stick, the candlestick park, and um, just that environment and being in the city. And so I like the idea of the intimacy of bringing back a ballpark in the city Taxes are another concern, you know, certainly with a new ballpark in general. And with Kansas City, I think you'll be even more familiar than me, Sam, and, and also Stephen, with regard to, you know, the KC culture and some of those concerns. 
Um, but I think everything comes down to money in the end, right? And, you know, whether or not a project is successful or not, is going to measure, be measured by how much money it could bring in. And ultimately, you know, there's been some stadiums like Florida Marlins, Miami Marlins Stadium that did not work. They made a lot of promises of economic impact and growth. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of the jobs were outsourced. And so therefore, you know, the locals who were promised these great jobs, you know, a part-time job selling hot dogs isn't exactly the type of um, situation you're signing up for as a taxpayer, right? I hope that Kansas City will do a lot for the local economy and for people from Kansas City. But often a lot of these higher paid jobs are six-figure incomes are from people that they bring in from other places. And so those are some of the drawbacks. But within the city, where is the location that they're considering? 18th and Vine is what there is one of them. And then so Kansas City current, the women's soccer team is building a stadium near the uh, river market area in that mm -hmm. area in the so they're thinking about that, and then they're also thinking about um, where the area where Camper Arena is. Well, sorry, it's not oh, Camper yeah. or Target Arena. So those are the three locations. Interesting. Um, yeah, no, just a great neighborhood. I actually had some of the best barbecue ever had up by 18th and Vine, and um, Negro League Museum um, is is near there. That was I really enjoyed going and seeing that museum, some rich culture there in terms of even music. You just hope that a downtown stadium doesn't displace a lot of that important culture. It's like in, in the Bay Area, you know, in California, uh, the tech culture sort of took over some of the older San Francisco type culture. And so that tends to happen. You run that risk of some of that diminishing you know, with a new multi-purpose facility. We shall see, hopefully, whatever they, they do benefits the local economy and, and local. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so your hometown, Chicago, had the idea of adding a roof over Soldier Field. What did you think of that idea and concept? Not a fan. I'm old school. I believe football should be played on grass and outdoors. That's me, but well, they had, they had this McBubble, you know, practice facility uh, years ago that the Bears played in. I know that they recently purchased some real estate and they're uh, doing some heavy lobbying and trying to um, build a new stadium. You know, Soldier Field has such a great history. I'm not a big fan of the uh, 2000, would have been 2002 um, renovations of Soldier Field. I feel like, uh, which actually Soldier Field was historically protected. And then I think they went off of that registry as a result of, it looks kind of like, you know, a spaceship landed in the Parthenon in Greece, the uh, Soldier Field today. And I, I'm not a big fan of that design. I love the colonnades and the, and the, the whole lakefront look with the Field Museum and um, science and industry, and just that whole area. Not a big fan of having an, uh, a roof 
Um, I, I like the, the elements of playing cold weather in Chicago. I like building a team around those confines. And so probably that was one of the biggest challenges with Minnesota fans, right? Vikings fans, because they played the metropolitan field outdoors and freezing uh, Minnesota for years until they built the Hubert Humphrey uh, Metrodome. And that sort of changed, you know, their perception of what the Vikings were from under Bud Grant, uh, their famous coach. You know, they were a, you know, old school defensive team, outdoors team to kind of a yuppie dome team. <laughs> so it just changed the perception. I'm not a big fan of, of an indoor, even a retractable thing there in Chicago. But I'm not saying I'm not a fan of it in other places, mm-hmm. you know, but I think in being a Bears fan, it's hard to imagine playing indoors. And what do you think of uh, a lot of NFL players uh, speaking out on uh, believing that all football fields should be a natural glass, grass and uh, getting rid of the artificial turf? You know, a lot to be, to be considered there because um, just play, having played football, and we had, at least in, in, when I played you know, at Ball State, we were given a bunch of different shoes, right? So we had shoes for wet, outdoor, artificial, and that was the AstroTurf. And then grass, outdoor, you know, indoor surface shoes, all these different. The field turf has certainly advanced, you know, Kentucky blue grass. I mean, there's there's different, um, you know, improvements from that old AstroTurf, like at Veteran Stadium where people were tearing their, ACLs and MCLs left and right. I like the idea of playing on grass. I think it's easier on your body, mm-hmm. uh, certainly. Um, I think there's a certain uh, level of, uh, you know, when you think of the, the roots of football playing outdoors on grass, uh, there's a lot of attraction to that. Not only from a fan's perspective, but I think as a player, playing on grass takes you back to your childhood. But I think more, most importantly, it's safer, um, we're finding. Uh, but, you know, again, the, the, the AstroTurf in the 80s and 90s is not the same as the artificial turf they use today. It's, it's better today. But um, I like the idea of going back to a lot of natural grass fields, I, I, personally. Pandemic caused a disruption in many things. It forced games to be played in empty or 20% capacity. Since then, what are some changes you've seen that are now added to the fan experience that wasn't there before? Yeah, that's that's a big question because the pandemic changed life for all of us as we know forever. In the sport industry, um, it really made being indoors and having classes online and having that younger Gen Z fan, right? Right now, Gen Z fans are, are interested in quite a bit different from, from other generations. One is they want a good return on investment, uh, giving their time or energy to. And so I think it's, it's really upon marketing departments today to accommodate younger fans because that's the lifeline of, of your business model. Um, and, you know, um, one way is, I think social justice and, and um, corporate responsibility, 
has been a an added focus that we've seen, you know, today. And I think companies are held accountable more than in the past. I use Irish Spring soap. I love it. Back in the 80s, 90s, I'm not sure that people really cared or paid attention to if there was a big scandal in the company. Whereas today, I think companies are held accountable more and more with the younger generation. So companies have to adapt to make those adjustments and show that they're environmental friendly and green friendly. And that's something that we've seen more and more um, an emphasis on. I think also reaching out to, you know, different diverse cultures. I grew up in Chicago, I'm Slovak and Polish, half and half. And I was waiting forever to have Eastern European night, or, you know, because there's a huge 200,000 plus people in, in, in the Chicago and Northwest Indiana area from Eastern Europe. So the White Sox finally, you know, started to have those kind of, of engaging, fan engaging nights. So I think engaging with diverse audiences as our country continues um, to, to change, you know, is important from a leadership standpoint. Also, the influx of technology. As technology has improved, a lot of fans, quite frankly, want an easy, accessible experience where they could go in and out, use their phones to click, where mm -hmm. I'm not sure if, I think you're a fan, Sam, of, of having like that memento, right? That ticket yeah. stub in your mm -hmm. hands. Me too. I collected ticket stubs for years. Um, but I think you have some younger fans who still cherish that, but most fans just want an easy, accessible experience. So that's something that marketing teams have to continue to look for ways to engage younger fans. And the stadium doesn't sell itself. And, you know, even in the recession back in 2009 and 10, you know, in that time period, there was this perception pre um, pre-recession that sports were recession proof. Mm -hmm. And actually we learned from that experience that, you know, the NFL cut 15% of its workforce, for example, back mm -hmm. in that recession. So that, that made an impact and sort of kind of led to where we are today. And so I think we were more equipped from that to know that, um, you know, we cannot get complacent as sport leaders. You know, you, you still have to engage fans and you have to adapt. And so, you know, the sports industry's um, done that in so many different different ways, as I mentioned. And, you know, they've, they've had to sort of adjust to the time period and not get complacent and always be on their toes in terms of the creative uh, measures to try to attract new new fans because... It, it's tough, right? I mean, you could watch a game at home and have a great experience on technology that's so advanced today that it's challenging to get people and sell them on, well, no, the sport experience is invaluable. There's intangible factors that you can't get sitting on a sofa at home. And mm -hmm. so how do you do that and engage the younger audience? So I think that's the biggest challenge. And they're going to continue to learn through trial and error how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that has changed is uh, 
the NIL uh, name, image, and likeness has changed the landscape of college athletics. What are your yes. thoughts on the NIL? And do you see it as a problem where players leave schools for a better NIL deal that make it look like more like a pay for place? NIL and conference realignment are, are sort of the two hot topics in our industry right now. Two of the hot, there's a, there's a lot of them, but academia has been pushing, I think for, for quite some time to have some sort of structure like NIL mm -hmm. uh, because it made sense. I mean, if you think about it, a, um, an English major could, could go sell a book on eBay, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Whereas 80,000, 100,000 people show up for, for an event. It, it makes sense that at least athletes could have that autonomy to be entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. to be able to go out and market themselves, their likeness. So I, I support that in terms of you know, athletes being able to go out on platforms. I mean, there's so many. Well, I was a consultant for a university program for a year. I worked with a particular team. And, you know, we saw firsthand NIL at work when it, when it passed. And we had the transfer portal was, portal was active. And we had seen, you know, two prominent athletes, um, you know, leave that particular program. So the effects of it, um, I think it's really difficult on coaches and being able to keep that continuity as a team and develop a team because you're always working with variables out of your control to where players can, can leave. I think it was necessary, but I still don't think it's been completely implemented correctly. And, and there's a lot of changes to make in the future because it's it's a two-way street too, right? I mean, athletes should be given the opportunity to have the autonomy to leave, but at the same time, there has to be some degree of loyalty or commitment too, you know, because otherwise, if you don't like something, you, you're just always leaving, right? And sometimes when you look at University of Alabama, whether it, it was, um, you know, Mac Jones or, you know, quarterbacks waiting kind of their turn rotation but of course that's Alabama right which is going to be different um, than other schools I, I think it's time will tell how this will be I I don't personally you know again I'm old school in certain ways I don't like the idea of everything being about me 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 and you know self-gratification I like you know the idea of working together as a team and building something together as a team Mm -hmm. And sometimes that takes a couple of years, and, but it is just the nature of what we have from a number of social media platforms that enable people to make money. And it makes sense because those are options that are available and you could really develop that, that following or be an influencer, you know, and, and that's what we're seeing. Maybe you might see with time more of a structured um, system where you would have some sort of, um, I always thought, you know, having a trust fund or something available for the, for those athletes to be able to use later would be a good approach. Yeah. It just sort of changed abruptly and, you know, we shall see how it's, how it's going to take shape long-term, you know? Yeah. As a professor at Texas A&M, which is a major athletic institution, 
you feel the need to help uh, current student athletes that you have in class with NIL and make sure they know how to better market themselves? Yes, um, I think it's, I try to do it, you know, with, with all my students, first of all, you know, student athletes, certainly NIL is an option for them. Um, mm -hmm. But also, I'm a business thinking type person and I like to um, help develop marketing skills in all my students. But it is important to understand from an athlete perspective what options are available for you. You know, exactly how the process works. Where do you go? I mean, today we have, you know, all these major universities have directors um, for NIL now. I mean, most of them have people that can sort of help mentor the athlete to help teach them the best course of action where they get started with that. Personally, I think it's empowering to young people to teach them as a professional how to market themselves, right? How are they, how to put themselves in a better position to where they can be, where they can interview well, for example, for a job, or they can build a platform or a website or business cards or ways in which they can, you know, market themselves to the best of their, their ability. I think that's so important because networking is everything in a professional world. And certainly being able to have a toolbox of understanding some, some ways in which you can monetize or market yourselves is, is uh, integral to um, somebody not only building a platform, you know, as a student athlete, but also as a young professional leaving a sport management program understanding that no one's going to give you a job just because you're an A&M graduate mm -hmm. or a Harvard graduate, or, I mean, you might go to a more prestigious program and your odds increase a little bit in terms of getting maybe consideration for a position. That's just the reality of, I don't think that's necessarily always right, but it, it is the reality of a prestigious university but you still have to develop those communication skills and the ability to market yourself. And so it, as a professor, I do believe it's, an, it's part of my duty to sort of, or my job responsibility, particularly in a leadership or marketing class to, to help um, teach students what would be the best mechanisms to do that. You know, and there's so many ways today to market compared to flyers and <laughs> things we, used to do. I mean, the internet's a treasure chest of ways of making money. I think it's important for professors to do that. And I think if professors have that business background or industry background, it puts them in a position where they could better do that rather than if they've only served as professors and have never sort of built a business. I think one um, advantage that helps me is that I've worked in the industry and I've also worked in higher ed. And so, you know, I, I think that's important if you, if you have those experiences to share those with students and help them. What former athlete do you think would have thrived under NIL if they were, uh, if they were <laughs> playing during the, during the time we are? Deion Sanders comes to mind for sure, prime time. Um, I thought he was a great, you know, self-promoter. Also, uh, Bo Jackson might be another example. I mean, just being a multi-sport athlete, which I don't believe, that's a separate discussion, but 
can you imagine today having like Deion Sanders played a um, playoff game for baseball mm-hmm. on Saturday and then he flew to Atlanta or, or whatever and played, you know, a NFL football game on Sunday. I mean, I don't know that yeah. you'll ever see that again, but, but they were multifaceted, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, you know, maybe Peyton Manning coming out. He had a, being the number one overall pick, Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf, 1998, I believe it was, yeah. draft, which I've, I've met Ryan Leaf uh, mm-hmm. at the New Mexico Bowl uh, when I worked that with my wife. Um, and so, you know, certainly if you're projected to be a top pick, but you, ha- you have to have more than that, right? Yeah. So I think it's also about charisma, being able to not only market yourself in a creative way, but having that personality to shine and doing it. I think mm-hmm. that's why you're seeing a lot of athletes, young athletes today, both females and males are doing very well. And a lot of it is marketing themselves outside of sport, you know, and sort of who they are, but the sport gives them that credibility. But, but yeah, Dion and Bo Jackson, I'm sure there's, there's a number of, of others. I mean, Michael Jordan was so charismatic for sure. You know, he's one of my favorite athletes of all time. Mm-hmm. Walter Payton too. Um, And so they, they had great personalities. I think they would have done a great job. Michael Irvin, Mm -hmm. (laughs) another guy who had a lot of charisma, you know, from a female um, perspective, I mean, some of those world cup players from that 99 team, uh, Mia Hamm, you know, probably would do really well with NIL, but back in college. And I think it's helped females, too, from the standpoint of being able to really go out and, and build their name um, outside of sport. Yeah, Deion Sanders was the first name that popped in my head. And then the other name that popped in my head was Brian Bosworth. Oh, yeah, Boz, yeah. Yeah. Yes, he, he, had, he was definitely in the late 80s. Oklahoma, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, Seahawks, he, I think, drafted him. But, yeah, he was definitely – um, self-promotion uh, extraordinaire back then. What are some changes you want to see in college athletics and in pro sports? That's a very good question. So in college athletics, even though I like the idea that players have the autonomy to play for different teams, I wish there was a little more stringent rules with the transfer portal because I, I believe that you're not seeing you're not seeing many instances of of being able to build teams anymore. You know, if something goes wrong or if if your first year is a little rocky, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna have a horrible experience there, you know, and it, it can't only be about catering to athletes, right? It has to be also about teaching athletes life lessons too. And one thing with college sports that we're seeing more and more is some of the rivalries are going away. Some of those great rivalries with conference realignment and these big media contracts um, with the Big Ten Network or SEC Network, or, you know, that's changed the game. Actually, the, um, um, the case that I think we talked about in class, you know, region, Board of Regions versus Oklahoma, 1984 mm-hmm. case that really changed 
open up the floodgates with regard to television and, and so forth. Um, so these media contracts are so big and it takes away a little bit from those. I think rivalries develop fandom mm -hmm. and really build fans, rivalries, right? Those great matchups. In pro sports, I'll use basketball as, as an example. I love basketball. I, I have true difficulty watching a game today. I love seeing, you know, the low post game, you know, the inside out offense uh, and the way the game was used to be played where you'd have some three point shots in, within the context of, of the game, but you'd have that Hakeem Olajuwon, for example, one of my favorite athletes of all time, you know, working within the post, the big man, we, we don't really see that as much anymore. And I, I get the, the data analytics side, the efficiency side, the percentage side of, okay, if we take this many threes versus this many twos, I, I get that part. But I don't think the game is as interesting to watch for me. Now, a lot of younger fans love it. They love seeing a lot of three-point shots. And, you know, that the game is – I mean, when you have two of the best three-point shooters in NBA history on one team, Clay Thompson and – Steph Curry, I mean, that, I think they had a lot of impact in how they changed the NBA, how it's played. But, um, but that would be one. Also, in, in the NFL, even though I am very much for player safety, uh, and I believe helmets, is, it, technology of helmets is one place to start, which we're, they're, they're working on developing better technology. And, but there are inherent risks when you play football. You know, having flags on, on, on every play, you know, again, if you're headhunting and you're trying to really, if it's obvious, you know, but if there's incidental contact with, with helmets sometimes, I mean, you know, that's part of the game. So seeing the game stop so much is not necessarily always interesting. Now they have worked on cutting down an NFL game in terms of being three, three and a half hours. And then I'd say in, in baseball, We've seen a lot of changes. I like the old school player at the plate who could play upon contact, right? The contact hitter, because that doesn't strike out a lot. But now the game sort of transitioned in more of a long ball type game. A lot of strikeouts. You know, you don't see a rotation of pitchers more than twice. Maybe you go through and, and that pitcher is gone. So the game's changed. Some of it for the better. Some of it's a natural progression or an evolution of the game with regard to modern talents and technology. But I think we're taking out some of the elements that made the games great as well. Some of the gamesmanship. And so that would be for pro sports. But, you know, again, I think college sports, the rivalries is, is seeing some of those die really. Mm -hmm. It's tough you know, from a fan's perspective. Last weekend, um, the uh, border war, Kansas versus Missouri, uh, met, met last weekend in Columbia. And that was like, uh, that game was the highest, like, attended uh, basketball game for Mizzou since that uh, game in 2012. Like, well, and, and here, you know, we, we had an event called Beyond the Lights. Um, it, was a, it was a cool event where we had, um, some professionals in the field um, speak to students. We actually had a big turnout. And a question got brought up on, 
you know, are we, are we going to bring, because Texas is going to enter the SEC, right? So big rivalry, Texas A&M versus Texas, and we're going to bring that back. And um, there was a little pushback on that. Uh, but I say, why? I mean, that, that, it's such a great rivalry. You know, it means a lot to, to Texans, I know. And so, as you mentioned, Sam, also the, the gate, right, being able to attract more fans to that event, um, it just makes sense to have those rivalry games. So I want to go back and talk a little bit about conference realignment, which has been a major topic the last two years in college athletics besides uh, NIL. Oklahoma and Texas are going to the SEC in the next few years. And then the one that really shocked everybody that came out of nowhere, UCLA and USC will be going to the Big Ten. What are your thoughts on it? And what challenges will those schools face when they uh, make the jump besides the level of competition? It's blasphemy. Now, <laughs> uh, you think of all those Rose Bowls. It's all about, ultimately, it's all about these large media contracts revenue you know the teams aligning themselves um, with the right conference that is going to be able to help them maximize their bottom line i think some of the challenges is you have these new conferences i mean the big 10 still called the you know the big 10 but i mean it's you know how do you develop a new history you know you have such in the pac 10 you know usc ucla you have such a rich history you always knew who was meeting in the Rose Bowl once the, the uh, playoff structure changed, which I was a fan of the playoff structure. I wanted them to have a definite champion, definitive champion. But um, I like the idea a little bit of, of rotating the bowls. But, but again, you, you, know, you, you traditionally had certain conferences playing each other and these rivalries in these games. You know, the, the, you mentioned the obvious, the competition will change. I think understanding the, the market, the Big Ten network, you know, the, the culture is just different too, mm -hmm. right? So you come from out West and you enter into a new, new kind of a, a market, media type market, you know, understanding, because the other teams have had tons of experience at it, right? So I think that's going to be an acclimation period. NIL is going to play a role because, you know, quite frankly, where can players maximize their talents? And also, would they rather play in L.A. in beautiful weather? Or would they rather play in Michigan? I don't know. You know, th those are questions depending on. So the ability to recruit athletes, I think recruitment will be impacted as well. But um, it, it will be interesting. You know, we've seen so much of this. I get the financial uh, motivation of why these administrations are doing it. I don't know the sustainability of it. And I think that's something that, that's yet to be known, you know. I think for <laughs> UCLA and USC, I think the biggest challenge going to Big Ten is having to go play in like Michigan or Ohio in like November and October when it's going to be like, 20 degrees out and they're used the to like the weather so that could that could definitely possibly hurt hurt them uh in those type of games where they're not used to playing in that cold environment where they're used to the warm weather the elements for sure although a lot of these kids you know they come from be recruited in california or somewhere who play for wisconsin 
know, or something. So depending on that could be a factor, I think in, in pro sports where you have a little more longevity with, with mm-hmm. teams, but it'll be interesting how th- this, this whole dynamic of the transfer porter portal, you know, that it's like A&M, we just had a bunch of athletes. Of course we had a down year. And so mm-hmm. had a bunch of athletes tap into the transfer portal you know, I, I just think that's taking away some of the um, ability for, from a coaching standpoint, as a coach, I think you really have to adapt and be able to recruit certain types of players and be willing to adjust on the fly because you can literally go from a coach developing a new program, to a contender, and you expect to be a contender the next season. You lose all your key players. Now you're rebuilding again. Mm-hmm. Now you're retooling again. So it's it's constant musical chairs. And so I, I feel for a lot of the coaches. I mean, obviously, you know, Nick Saban's going to be okay with his contract. Yeah. Jimbo Fisher's going to be okay. But I'm saying, you know, coaches that are maybe in those mid-major programs, it, it, it's tough to remain competitive for a long period of time, right? So what's a sporting event that you've seen that really wasn't popular to follow or watch, but has become a popular thing to watch and attend today? Uh, well, UFC. Um, I remember the early UFC, which I really enjoyed, you know, Dan Severin or Kent Shamrock or some of the pioneers where you would see different skill sets, right? You'd see like, okay, who would win between this Kung Fu expert and this grappler or, or whatever. Now everyone has a similar skill set in terms of fighting, but I think in terms of media, Fox and, and, you know, Dana White really building that into a multi-billion dollar entity, you know, that, I don't know that people saw that coming, you know, when it, when it first started, I think internationally, you look at a sport like cricket, which isn't as popular here in the States, of course, people don't really follow it, but in India or other countries, you know, cricket's very popular um, and that's developed. The NFL has tried, you know, have games in London or Germany this year or Mexico, um, but it, it's hard when, when that international interest is in football or soccer. But I'm thinking of, you know, when you think of smaller sports, that have developed just offhand. There's so there are so many women's sports. Certainly, the participation aspect has risen exponentially, you know. And so I think uh, young girls, you know, today more than ever aspire to be involved in sports. And we didn't necessarily see that um, always growing up, um, but today there's more more of a push for that. You know, I, I'm thinking of other other sports. I mean. I'm thinking more from an international standpoint of in Brazil and different places I've traveled to there's sports that have, that are popular locally that haven't necessarily caught on in the U S but, but the opposite in terms of blown up, I would say definitely UFC right away comes to mind. Yeah, for sure. Uh, What's your favorite stadium and arena that you've visited, whether it's for a game or a tour? Okay, let's see. Well, recently, there's a bucket list item. And I think I told you, Sam, but 
I I went with my wife to uh, check out Cameron Indoor Stadium, you know, and that was really a cool experience. Um, I've been to Fenway for a game, um, very unique. Uh, I would say I'm biased, but the old Chicago Stadium for a Bulls game and Comiskey Park, um, the old Comiskey. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, now it's Guaranteed Raid Stadium, which I'm not a big, big fan of. It was the cell, U.S. Cellular for a long time. But the old Comiskey Park was in action from 1910 to 1990. You know, that was really neat. But same neighborhood, though, the new Comiskey, which now is, you know, Guaranteed Rate. What's neat is you have to walk through some of the neighborhoods in the south side of Chicago to get to the stadium. That's a unique setup, which you don't really see anymore. And I love it, uh, you know, because you can really get a taste of that local culture. There was a um, feel in, in Alabama, Alabama, Birmingham, Rickfield Stadium. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of it? I, th I uh, think so. That's a minor league park, isn't it? Minor league baseball park. Um, and, and so it's, um, and if I, just to get, give you a correct, correct name, but yeah, Rick Woodfield, sorry, Rick Woodfield. For some reason I was going blank on it, but really neat, you know, a lot of history. And if you look at, even in the South, a lot of those old minor league baseball stadiums are really neat. Luther Williams Stadium is another one, minor league stadium. There's a lot of rich tradition there. And then I would say overseas, I went to a Boca Juniors game in Argentina, um, famous stadium. I also went to Maracanã Stadium in Brazil, you know, just to experience soccer um, in those stadiums is, was really neat. Um, and then again, in the U.S., I probably have been to 23 or 24 cities for baseball games. Mm -hmm. um, and then for NBA games, I think 13 or 14. And then for NFL, maybe eight or nine. I'm, I'm a big fan of the throwback baseball stadiums. I like the throwback yeah. stadiums. I, I haven't been to Camden Yards, but I heard that that's a really neat experience. Also in um, where the Pirates play, Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's a, I heard it was a really neat experience. But I would say my all-time favorite baseball stadium, the old Comiskey Park, all-time favorite uh, basketball stadiums, the old Chicago Stadium. For sure. Um, so I'll, any advice you'd give to those that are chasing their dream? Yes. Um, very important question. Do not give up. Do not let haters tell you you can't do something. Go out and make it happen. And, you know, certainly be willing to work for it, though. You set goals. It starts with a vision. It starts with visualizing where you want to be in five years or, or having that dream. But ultimately, you have to put the work in and you have to develop a plan of how you're going to get there. It doesn't just happen, particularly if you don't grow up in, with privilege, when, you're, when you don't necessarily have the resources or the connections, um, I would say put yourself in a position to succeed. Go out and find places that, you know, these events take place or 
join conferences, higher learning experiences, be in positions where you can meet these individuals, you know, fighting through the obstacles and challenges that are going to come with um, pursuing your dream, being able to handle rejection and continue to bounce back and be resilient. Um, and certainly um, having that psychological hardiness and um, mental toughness. I'm not a big fan of participation trophies, for example. <laughs> and I tell this to my classes. You know, you're going to go through difficult times in life and things aren't going to go your way, but you have to be able to develop coping skills and be able to deal with adversity when it hits. And I think that's one of the critiques of, of, of younger generations, perhaps because we live in a different time and things are more convenient. You know, sometimes when things don't go our way, you know, we, we can't crack, right? We, we got to continue to persevere. Now, I've met some students over the years who, who have those good values, but I think some of those values, unfortunately, are, are dying out to where the tendency is when things don't go your way, you, you complain, you find reasons why, you know, you, you take it personally rather than look at it. Let's rise above it, right? If, if people are closed-minded and don't want to hire us or if people don't see the value in, in us, oh, well, that, that's their loss. Let me go out and let me continue to find other opportunities. And I think that's one of the, one of the greatest attributes you can have um, is being resourceful, but also being resilient. Like where I started in life, most people didn't believe I, I get where I'm at now. And I'm not even where I want to be yet. You know, I want to continue to pursue other goals and, and accomplish things in life. Um, but I always use my past challenges that I've went through as fuel to help me overcome future challenges, you know, and, and remembering those times. Cause I, I came from a pretty humble background. As I mentioned, I, I grew up, um, you know, not having money, uh, not having mentors, not having fa um, family, you know, my immediate family, you know, my grandparents passed away. My parents passed away. I didn't have brothers and sisters. And so I had to go out and sort of make things happen. And the world's not going to meet you halfway. If you want something in life, you have to go out and you have to get it, not take no for an answer. But also when you receive criticism, learn from those experiences and make those adjustments. Maybe it's something you're not doing, or maybe it's something you haven't learned yet that you can go out and get that skill set. Maybe, maybe it's a master's degree or maybe it's something. I've been a fighter my whole life, and I believe that um, ha young people having developing that fight to go out and be competitive in a competitive world, because it, you know the reality is um, nothing is going to be given to anybody. You know you have to go earn it, and so the sooner you learn that, the better for for young people. And there's a lot of young people who get that, um, but there's some who, you know, not just young people. This is across all generations. You have entitled people too, who believe that they're entitled to things and they don't have to work for it. So there's no substitute for hard work, but if you want something, you got to find a way to get it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. And I want to say, Dr. Soda, I was very lucky to be one of your students that you were at Emporia State. Uh, I always appreciate the lessons you uh, taught me and you've really helped our podcast out by um, motivating me and uh, giving me the tools to go out there and reach out to uh, people. And we've been lucky enough to uh, have many guests on and I give a lot of credit to you for uh, helping like lay that foundation down to help me be able to gain the confidence to help get the podcast to where it is right now and hopefully continue to get it to where we want it to be one day. Well, I'm proud of the both of you. And I think you've developed a really great idea, you know, to interview um, professionals who have, who have experienced some measure of success in their fields and being able to learn valuable life lessons and tips from them and apply it. And uh, so the sky is the limit. I have no doubts that, you know, um, the Sport Mecca uh, podcast is going to continue to to grow and and uh, get bigger. So um, um, thank you for having me on. And, and I really enjoyed it. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.